welcome to the New Life Fellowship podcast. New Life Fellowship is a community of grace in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. Our goal is to teach and share and experience the life of Jesus Christ together. You're about to listen to a message from one of our meetings. Please make sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca. Without further ado, let's listen in. Well, welcome, welcome those online. My name's Ross Gilbert, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm excited about this morning. You got your Bibles with you, you get extra bonus points, uh, but you can turn to Genesis chapter three, that's where we're going to be looking at this morning, and we're going to be kind of looking at the, the second half of Genesis chapter three. We, we looked at the first part last week and looking at the, the fall, the, the where Adam and Eve sinned, and now we get to see the response to all that. Uh, and I, I'm excited about what God's going to show us, and hopefully we get to see it uh, from God's perspective and what God was up to. But I, I think one of the things I want to keep coming back to uh, as we go through, especially this chapter, is I want to keep in mind what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 3, where he says that his, his concern or his worry was that just as Satan, the serpent, deceived Eve, that he would deceive us from the simplicity that is Christ. And your Bibles often will say simplicity and devotion to Christ, but that and devotion has been added by the, by the translators. It's really just the simplicity of Jesus. And I think that's such an, a key passage for us to keep in mind that, that the gospel is simple. It's all about the person of Jesus Christ and what he has done and what he is doing. And that what our enemy wants to do is distract us from that and pull us away to something else, to make a more complicated gospel, a gospel that's about you and what you're doing and your accomplishments and your, your successes or your failures. And what we want to get back to is just the simplicity of Jesus and what he's done. And so that's what we're going to be kind of focusing in on. And, and especially in this chapter three of Genesis, I think that this might be the most significant chapter in the whole of Scripture because of what it contains. It shows both the fall, but also the promise of redemption all in one chapter. This one chapter is enough to explain the problems in this world and God's answer as well. So we're gonna, we're gonna open up in prayer and invite the God, invite the Holy Spirit to be our teacher this morning. Lord Jesus, we, uh, we just celebrate you and we're reminded with, with Pastor Greg as he reminded us about the communion and the cross and what that meant and how you want to be our best, best friend. And you proved your love for us on that cross. And this morning now, as we, we get to examine really more about what happened on that cross and why it had to happen, I pray that you'd be, this, you'd be the teacher. And, and no matter how many times we've heard this, no matter how many times we've, we've, we've read this passage, would you show us something new? Would you light our, our hearts afire again and just be excited about the grace and the love and the mercy and the power that is in your word that is through what you've accomplished on the cross. So we're gonna trust you to do something special. In your name we pray, amen. All right, so like I said, last time we looked at the first seven verses of chapter three and we saw how the serpent, and we, saw, we said the serpent really was Satan. It wasn't, wasn't a snake it, it was the serpent, meaning it was more description rather than um, being uh, a physical description. It's sort of like how Jesus is the, the Lion of Judah or the Lamb of God. That's a description of his character more than his appearance. And so Satan, the serpent, shows up, and, and it's in his rebellion. He wanted to be God. He wanted to, to have all the glory and, and, and the praise, and he wanted to, to, 
take over God. And so what he did, what he, what he did there is he decided to attack God's great creation, his most prized creation, which is mankind. And we saw that Eve was deceived and Adam disobeyed and they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and it's not that God didn't want Adam and Eve to be wise. It wasn't like he was trying to hold that back. Instead, what we, see, what we saw is that these two trees were a picture of something, that these two trees were really giving Adam and Eve a choice and an option. Do they choose God or do they choose life on their own terms? And that's really what those trees were about, that they had to make a choice because we saw love requires a choice. And so he placed those two trees there, hoping that they would choose him, hoping that they would choose that God would be that source of life. But unfortunately, they chose to eat of the wrong tree, the no-no tree. And by, by the result of that is they chose independence. They chose to find life in their own terms. But what did God promise would happen the, de- the day they eat of that tree? That they would surely die. Now, most commentators I've read on this passage have said that, that God spared them of that death because they didn't die that day, that they went on to live hundreds of years after that, and so God spared them of the death that he promised. I don't believe that for a moment. I think we've, we've, mis- we've limited death to only that moment when the heart stops, the brain stops, the lungs stop, and your body is ready to go into the dirt, ready to go into the ground, and that's what we pronounce death. But the reality is scripture talks about death in a different way. Scripture talks about death as an experience in your whole being, not just in your physical body. And if you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about how we're more than just a body. We're more than just a a soul in a body. We're a spirit, a soul in a body. The spirit being the most important part of who we are, being the core of who you are. That's your, your identity. And so what we saw there is this death it entered all of humanity, all of this world. And so Paul talks about that in Romans 5 and verse 12, where he says that just as through one man, that one man being Adam, sin entered into the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. And what's really key there is you have to understand is that it wasn't just Adam sinning as a representative of us, You and I were there spiritually in Adam. We were participating in what Adam was doing. And so much like we use the illustration, if you were on the bus and a bus goes over a cliff, regardless of whether you're the driver or not, you are going over the cliff. And so in this case, we're on the the bus Adam, and he's the driver, and he drove all of humanity over the cliff with him. And so death spread to all of us, and we're experiencing it in each and every one of us. And so Paul writes in Ephesians 2.1, and you were dead in your sins and trespasses. Meaning that it wasn't just that you were going to die one day, you were dead. Now, granted, there wasn't some zombie apocalypse going on in Ephesus at the time, right? I think they would, they would have known something about that. The history books would have recorded that. But they were nonetheless walking dead. They were dead inside, in their spirits, and experiencing death in their soul as well as in their body as it was decaying. And so just as God promised, you, the day you eat, the day you try and find life on your own terms, you will experience death. And that's what they were doing. And we see it today. In many ways, those who have not yet accepted the gift of God, not yet received that gift of salvation, are the walking dead right now. 
walking around in the, in the blindness of their minds, not recognizing what God's offering them, the gift that God's offering them, and instead trying to find life in their own terms, but not finding it, and only experiencing the death from that. And so when he talks about the wages of sin is death, again, that's the experience of it. The misery, the emptiness, the despair, the shame, the, the sense of failure, that's this death that you're experiencing in your soul. And that's what we saw. We saw that in their response to what happened. So in Genesis 3 and verse 8, it goes on. It says, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So we saw in verse 7, what they did is they saw that they were naked and that wasn't okay anymore. And, and it's not okay because they were married. That was fine. But they've now felt deep shame. We saw at the end of chapter two, there was no shame in this garden. There's no shame in God's creation. But the moment they ate, their eyes were open and they see themselves through this lens of shame now. This sense of there's something wrong with me. There's something not right anymore. And so they sewed together fig leaves to hide from one another. And then when God shows up on the scene and he comes to, to meet with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day and to, to hang out with them, they get even more terrified and they know no fig leaf's gonna do so now they jump behind the bushes and they're terrified and they're hiding from God. And so you can, ex you can see the death that they're experiencing. And then, then the Lord God called to the man and he said to him, where are you? I thought about that this week, about what, what God was saying in that phrase, where are you? I mean, it's not that he didn't know where they were. He's omnipotent. He knows everything. But instead he's, He's calling out to them and he's saying, I know there's something not right anymore. What have you done? Where did you go? And so he, he coaxes them out of their hiding place and, and he says, I, Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And God says, and who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? He asks him a very direct question. Look how Adam responds. He says, that woman, whom you gave to me, by the way, just so we're clear on that one, she gave me from the tree and, and I ate. I'm pretty innocent in all this. So Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent. The serpent deceived me and I ate. Notice that their first instinct now is not to own it, is not to take responsibility, but to blame and deflect, to self-protect, because there's so much shame and insecurity. I heard one commentator, he was, he was talking about this passage, and he was talking about, you know, we often ask the question, what causes anxiety? What causes depression? What causes despair? And he says, you know, really, we got the question backwards. We really should be asking the question, what causes peace? Because anxiety is the norm. Despair is the norm. Frustration is the norm. That's the typical reality. The fact that anyone would ever experience peace or hope or joy, that is unknown. And again, we see it starting in this passage here where we're now experiencing the absence of life, experiencing the absence of God's life. All they've got is death. 
And so I want to start with looking at that. What did man lose? What did Adam and Eve lose? They lost that connection with God. They, they lost the ability to receive life from God. You know, imagine being connected to a power plant and someone cutting the main power line. And all of a sudden, everything goes black. Everything goes dark. That's essentially what happened with Adam and Eve now is they've been disconnected. Their heart has lost that light and that life of Jesus and it's gone dark. And so all they've got now is this fear, this sense of shame, hence the fig leaves to hide behind, this feeling of exposed and vulnerable, sense of unloved, angry, and bitter, and a deep mistrust of others, not trusting that, that, that others will love them. And so they're feeling this isolation and this loneliness and pulling away. Now, before we, we look at God's response, I want to ask the question, what did God lose? So we, we know Adam and Eve, they lost life, and they're experiencing death. They lost that, lost that connection with God. But in order to understand, I think, God's response and his motivation, we have to understand what he lost. And he lost his most beloved creation, mankind. They were now disconnected. He lost his beloved. And you see, that's, that's why I think what he's saying in that question, where are you? What have you done? Why, why have you rejected me? Why have you turned your, your back towards me? And so that relationship, that communion, that connection, that, that two-way communication that God so longed for was taken away. And so in a very real way, what, what God lost was you and me. And that, that kind of blew my mind this week because I always, always looked at it as what did I lose? What did we lose? But, but God lost so much. He lost humanity. And so I think understanding that now, we have a better understanding of what motivates him. And you see, I want you, I want you to read, let's read Isaiah 61 verses one and two and and key in on the heart of God here. This is the passage that Jesus read when he, was, when he first began his ministry and he pulled a scroll off in the synagogue and he reads this passage and he says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Listen, listen to the language he's using there. Listen to the language he's using to describe his creation. He doesn't talk about them being rebellious, although we were. He doesn't call them wicked and sinful, despite the fact that we were. He doesn't refer to them as enemies or a bunch of worthless good-for-nothings, despite that being true. Instead, he uses words like afflicted and captives and prisoners and brokenhearted and hurting, bringing a day of vengeance, not against man, but against the real enemy. And so I want you to see, God's not, God's not fighting against mankind despite mankind choosing to rebel against God. That's not his heart. That's not his, his motive. Instead, he's choosing to fight for you and I. He's choosing to fight for mankind. And so in many ways, God's motivation is like the hero of the story who's going to go on an adventure, going to go on a journey now 
to rescue the beloved that's been kidnapped. And so if you want a picture of that, think Liam Neeson and Taken. I'm a man of special skills. And I will look for you. I will find you. In this case, I will kill you. I wish I could do impressions. I really do. I can't. I've tried all week. That's, that's, that's the best I got. And, and I'm even half Irish. It's really embarrassing, quite frankly. I apologize, Mom. I'm sorry. I should do better. But, but that's his heart. That's his motivation. He's coming to rescue you and I. And he will literally go to not just the ends of the earth, but to hell and back to rescue us. And so now, now I think understanding his heart and his motivation, now we can understand the response, which is simply known as the curse. And, and I understand why it's called the curse, but, but I think we've missed the heart of God with calling it the curse. But let's take a look at it. So beginning in Genesis 3, verse 14, says, the Lord God said to the serpent, this is the Satan now, because you have done this, cursed are you more than any all cattle and more than every beast of the field on your belly you will go and dust you will eat the days, dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. So remember, this is not just a snake. This is not why snakes kind of crawl around on their belly. That's not what's happening here. He has cursed Satan. And in doing so, what he's done is he's cast Satan out of heaven to now roam this earth. His home now is no longer heaven. That doesn't mean he doesn't get to go to heaven from time to time. We see that. In fact, read the book of Job, Satan shows up. And again, note the response of God when Satan shows up in heaven. He doesn't panic. He doesn't freak out. In fact, he asks him, what you been up to? Where are you coming from? A little bit of trash talk, if you ask me. <laughs> little bit of a dig, right? Where you been, Satan? And his answer is, you darn well know where I've been. I've been roaming the earth. Because that's, that's where he was cast down to. And again, he was cursed to do so. And so he's been expelled from heaven, and now he's walking and crawling around this earth, and he's got nothing left to do now except to cause as much trouble and hopefully lead another rebellion. But I love verse 15 because in verse 15 is really the, the entire gospel in one verse of what God's going to do. Now, before we get into it, I want you to notice that God immediately redeems women. So if you have any question, what does God think about women? Read this verse. Because what he chooses to do is include women in the plan of redemption. That it was gonna be this woman and through, the seed through this woman. And I think that's just beautiful because God didn't have to do that. He could have just sent Jesus to arrive, sort of beam me down Scotty style where he arrives here on planet Earth. But Jesus instead was born through a woman. And I, I just see there's something powerful there where God was including women in the plan of redemption, despite the fact that Eve was deceived by Satan. And that seed is Jesus, is Jesus Christ. And, and I like how it talks about how, how Satan, you're going to bruise his heel. You think about a heel, you know, you bruise a heel, that, that's going to cause you to limp, that's going to cause some damage. And what's that reference to? It's, it's a reference to the cross. It's a reference to, to where Jesus suffered 
on our behalf, where he was beaten, he was whipped, and he was scourged. And then he suffers this, this painful, horrible, long death on the cross, where he's crucified. And, and I just, I was imagining how Satan must have felt in that moment. I've defeated him. I've got him. I've overcome him. So, so he's, I just imagine, he's all excited. I've done it. I've won. I've got victory. But the reality is, he's lost. He's lost because what's happened is, is he's been overcome on that cross. He, death couldn't hold him, as that song says. Right? The, the cross was the, the place of victory, not a place of defeat, because Jesus overcame death through his resurrection. And I think that's really important for us to remember, because we saw last time that our problem was more, much more, than just that we had sinned and therefore needing forgiveness. It was much more than just we needed a pathway to heaven. What we saw was that what do dead people need? They need life. And so what, what God has done now is he's done more than just die so that we could be forgiven. He needs to give us new life. But the problem is you can't put new wine in old wineskins. That, that our spirit had been so corrupted that it could not receive God's life. So what does God do? He does something really special on that cross. Where, where Satan bruises his heel, he, he took Robin and Deanne. And he took Ivy and he took Tim and Bobby Joe. And he took, well, one day he's going to take Adam, I'm praying, right? So, but he's, he's taken you and I, all who name the name of Jesus, into himself on that cross. So picture it this way. We're on the bus, Adam. Destination hell, lake of fire. Driven over the cliff, and we are falling and falling and falling. And then along comes Jesus in the rescue chopper. And he pulls you and I out of that bus and puts us on the chopper. Now, the problem is this chopper crashes and it, it dies. And we all died with Jesus. That, that corrupted, wicked, evil, sinful spirit was crucified with Christ and no longer lives. Praise Jesus. Because when Jesus rose again from that grave, guess who rose with him? You and I did. Brand new people, though. Where's the amen for that one? Amen. Right? Not the same person. Now a brand new person made in the likeness of God, pure and holy and righteous, says in Ephesians 4.24, qualified to receive this great gift, the life of Jesus. Because what do dead men, dead men need? They need life. And that's what he's given to us. And so we've been given a, a new life, a new heart that is free of shame. Now, it doesn't mean you're not going to experience shame, but it doesn't belong to you. Instead, it's just the attacks of the enemy. And so that's who we are now. And so while, while Satan will bruise Jesus' heel, it says Jesus will crush his head. I love that picture, the defeat. And, and I love how, how God is so confident in his plan. He tells Satan, this is what's going to happen. 
Like he doesn't hide it from him. He's not worried. He doesn't need to throw him off the scent. He just tells him boldly in front of you, you're gonna lose. You're gonna lose big time. Because who can compare to God? Who can compare to God's ability and his power? Isn't that incredible? That should be enough. We could have closed out chapter three at that point. But he goes on. And now he's gonna speak to Adam and Eve. And again, this is where I think we've misunderstood the heart of God. We've, we've gone on and we continue to see this as part of the curse and, and, and we see this now as God's anger and his punishment towards Adam and Eve. But if he's punishing them now, then, then what was Jesus' death for? And we saw last time that this warning that God gave them about death wasn't a punishment. It was a consequence. And so, again, we come back to the heart of God. He's on a rescue mission. He's, he's out to save his beloved. And so let's see how he responds now to Adam and Eve. Because, again, he understands humanity. He understands how we operate. And he, I think he understands how easily we are satisfied with something lower or less than what he's offering us. So let's, let's read. We're going to start with Adam first. He says, then to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. <clears throat> I'm not going to make a joke about not listening to my wife anymore. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. No, no, no. I want to live. <clears throat> so he says in verse 17, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree from which I've commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it. Cursed are you. No. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. No, God does not curse Adam. He cursed the ground. He adds toil to the ground. He adds toil to life in the garden. And, and really, the garden was Adam's job. It was his, his career, his work, and God adds toil to it. Now, why would God do that? Is God just bitter? Is he like, you've, you've betrayed me, you've hurt me, I'm gonna make you suffer. No, it's not his heart. Again, God understands humanity, he understands our motives, and he understands how we are willing to find life and just settle down with a little bit, far less than what he's offering. And, and I say that because throughout all of Scripture, we see that pattern over and over and over again, where God offers them so much and they settle for so little. And that's not what he wants for us. And so if we could find life outside of God, we had gone for it. So he adds toil, he adds frustration. For what purpose? To push us, to drive us, to find life in him. To, to, to find life in what we can only find in, in, in Jesus Christ himself. And so the toil is, is, is the struggles we find at work. It's the struggles we find in, in life around us, things breaking down, and your, your cars, the batteries dying in you in the worst moment, right? That things are never easy. It's government bureaucracy, really, is what we're saying. 
all that red tape. That's that toil and that frustration where things just aren't working to lead us back to him, to find life in Jesus. But what about to Eve? Verse 16, he says, to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, again, he doesn't curse Eve, but he does add pain. And, and the childbearing here, I think, is much more than labor and delivery. It's the child rearing. It's the raising children. And every, every woman I've spoken to, as difficult, as painful as labor may have been, even if it was 18 to 24 hours in length, it's only 18 to 24 hours compared to the 18 plus years of raising children and the frustration and the pain and the difficulty of, of raising those little monsters, I mean, those little beautiful kids. <laughs> Again, why would he add pain to that? Because just as men are, it's so easy for them to find their identity and their value in their, in their career and their job. For women, it's so easy to find it in, in their families, in relationships, where, where that's where I'm going to find my worth. That's where I'm going to find significance from. And God says, don't settle. Don't settle. And then he says towards the husband and wife, yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. That word desire, we're going to see next week, is really the word, could be translated as control. And so you think about it, what he's saying is, wife, you're going to try to control your husband, and he's going to try to rule over you. What is that going to do? It's going to add all kinds of conflict, all kinds of difficulty and frustration now in their relationship and marriages. Again, why would God do that? Is God against marriage? Of course not. But he's showing to us over and over again our need for Jesus. And you see, I know for myself, I'm so tempted to try to engineer a life that will be clean and simple, where we're trying to automate things and make it simpler and simplify things. I mean, think about how often that's been sold to us. I don't know if you remember, nor might remember because it's old, but, <laughs> but when the computer came, do you remember when the computer came, right? And what was the, what was the sales pitch on the computer? It will make your life easier. You will have so much free time. You'll be able to do a whole week's of work in eight hours, and you'll have the rest of the week. How's that turning out? No, because what do they discover? Well, you could do now five times the work. And then they make further advancements and further advancements. And every time, it's like, this will make your life easier except it doesn't. And, and so I've often, I've spent so many hours in prayer talking to God, God, why don't you just do this? If you could remove that obstacle, maybe, maybe if you could set up where, where we just have all this money and I don't have to be, be worried about money and finances, we could do so much more. God, wouldn't that be better if you were to do all that? And he, he whispered to me in such a clear voice. He says, you know, you're trying to remove the toil that I place there so you would trust me. That, that essentially what I want to do is I want to make life easy so I don't need you, Jesus. And when I heard it, 
I couldn't deny it. I wanted to. No, no, God, I, I will still trust you. But I knew he was right. That, that that toil was pushing me to trust Jesus. And so what I want you to see is that the, the pain and the suffering, the, the trials that we go through are not our enemy. They're not the thing that we need to fight against often. It's the very thing that God's using to trust him, to, to push us into that dependence upon him. And so there was a curse. Satan was cursed. The ground was cursed. But I think Adam and Eve were given a blessing. That blessing was to show them their desperate need for Jesus. And that's what we see in our lives as well. And what's amazing now is in that toil, in that pain, in that conflict, I get to see Jesus show up in ways I never imagined. Ways that are undeniable and incredible. And quite frankly, those trials and tribulations, those toil and that pain, pales in comparison to the joy of trusting Jesus. Well, let's, let's close out the chapter here. And so in verse 20, now the man called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. It's interesting. You know, before this moment, she wasn't Eve. And, and he wasn't, wasn't really Adam. I mean, Adam just means man. But really, he, it was Ish and Isha, Lord and my lady. Titles of distinction, titles of honor and, and power and beauty. And now they're just man and mother. Some of that shine is gone now. And so he calls her Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Now notice what he did here. They, they were already clothed. They had these fig leaves on. But it was man's attempt. It was their efforts to cover themselves. And it was almost like God was saying, you can't cover your shame. You can't do it. But I'm going to. And what we see in the very beginning is the very first sacrifice. The very first sacrifice in response to sin. And as we saw for those 1,500 years of, of Israel and the law, where, where God um, legislated the sacrifices in response to sin, it all starts back here in the garden. He's sending a message. It's already that symbol, that picture, that death requires a sacrifice. It's, it's a picture of the cross that's to come. And so he, he, he sacrifices an animal, and he himself clothes them. Do you see the mercy there? He could have just ripped off their fig leaves and said, now live with your shame. You, you, you made your bed, now lie in it. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he gives them a proper covering. And then in verse 22, then the Lord God said, behold, a man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out and at the east of the garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned in every direction to guard the way of the tree of life. Again, this is not a punishment here. He realizes that now, if he eats of the tree of life, he would live forever. And often maybe he'd say, well, isn't that a good thing? Well, let me ask you this question. Do you want to live forever in the sin-cursed world, 
in this sinful state? No, that, that would have been the most horrendous punishment, much like Satan, to roam the earth. And so what does he do? He, he shows mercy by allowing us to die, to bring end to the misery on this earth, knowing that there's something far greater awaiting us. And so he sends Adam and Eve out of the garden, but he, he sets up a cherubim to guard the way. And, then, and I, I think what he's done is he's put an angel there to say, there's always going to be a way home, waiting for that moment of Jesus Christ on the cross. And I think that's beautiful. No matter, no matter where you are right now in your life, no matter what you've done, how many times you did it, no matter how many times you have You've rebelled and lived this sinful, in this sinful world for all that it offers us. God says there's always a way home. I'm gonna protect it. I'm gonna make sure that there's always a way back to me. And we can always go to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your heart. We thank you for the mercy that you've shown to us. And I pray that you would, throughout today and this week, try to make sense of what I tried to share here this morning. That we would see, see not one who's out to get us, not one who's out to punish us, not one out to hurt us, but one who's out to love and bless us. Someone who wants to be our best, best friend. Someone who has gone to hell and back in order that we might have life and have it abundantly. That we'd no longer be a prisoner. That we'd no longer be a captive to sin and death and the evil one. And that instead, Lord Jesus, that we would just, we would enjoy your life. That we would trust you, not just for salvation, not just so we can go to heaven one day, but we would trust you today and right now. In your name we pray. You've been listening to the New Life Fellowship podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more great content, please be sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca, and sign up for our mailing list. Subscribers will receive our The Life in the Apartment ebook that is sure to encourage and bless. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch the latest services and additional video content. New Life Fellowship is a registered charity that is supported by the giving of partners and friends. All donations will be received. If you would like to donate, donate at newlifekw.ca. Your giving is highly valued and appreciated. You are loved. Take care.